I'm Tavid Nasir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that provides insights and tools to help leaders take on the challenges and opportunities found in leading today's workplaces. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tavid Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that offers keynotes and corporate trainings in both in-person and virtual settings that will help you to improve the way you lead and guide your organization's growth and future successes. Now, if you've been enjoying my podcast and the insights and tools I've been sharing on how you can improve your leadership craft, and you're interested in having me expand on them with your team and organization, I'd like to invite you to check out my speaking page on our website at tavinasir.com to learn more about some of the topics I can discuss at your upcoming event. And now, I'd like to introduce my guest for this episode, Erica Anderson. Erica is the founding partner of Proteus, a coaching and consulting firm that focuses on leader readiness. In addition to writing a column for Forbes, Erica is also the author of four best-selling books. In fact, I spoke with Erica about her book, Leading So People Will Follow, back in episode number 12 of this podcast. So it's going to be fun to talk with her about her latest book, Change From the Inside Out making you, your team, and your organization change capable. Hi, Erica. Welcome back to the Leadership Biz Cafe. It's nice to talk to you again after all these years. Yes, after all these years, here we are again. Well, I have to tell you, Erica, you've written a fascinating book on change, and I really appreciate how you start the discussion on how do we get better at leading change by starting with ourselves. And to help describe the starting point in our journey to not just accepting, but embracing change, you bring up the biological function of homeostasis, which refers to various biological functions our body employs to maintain a steady, relatively normal state of operation. And you write how it's not just our body, but also our minds that yearn for that notion of stability. And this desire extends out to organizations where we see so many of them preferring to sticking to what they know. So to overcome this innate desire for stability and really connect with change, you share something you call the change arc, where we have to go through three distinct phases, proposed change, mindset shift, and new behavior, at which point change really occurs. So given how the beginning of successfully promoting change starts with ourselves, Erica, could you walk us through this change arc process? Yes. And if you don't mind, let me, I want to give a little bit more context about the whole homeostasis thing. Is that okay? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Okay. So um, how I came to this is I started wondering, because we've been at Proteus, my company, we've been doing change acceleration, change management with clients for almost 15 years. And I noticed that even though we have a good process and we're good at this, that change was still so hard for so many people And I really, one of the codes I wanted to crack in writing this book is why is that? Why is change so hard for people? And so I started to think about it in terms of history, in terms of human history, because that's, you can find out so much by doing that. And if you think about it, and I know you know that I used this example because you read the book, but if you think about it um, until very recently, like if you think of a person 100 or 200 or 500 years ago, that person's life would have been almost unimaginably stable and predictable to us, right? So if there's a person anywhere in the world 300 years ago They almost certainly grew up where their parents and grandparents grew up, did the work that their parents and grandparents did, 
ate the same food, did the same activities for their whole life. And even the few changes that happened were predictable. You know, somebody has a baby, somebody dies, you know, the bad year for crops. So when real change came, it was almost always a danger and a threat, right? It was a, a flood or a famine or a war, something that was really disruptive. And in those situations, almost always the best bet was to try to get back to, to that previous norm as quickly as possible, homeostasis. So not only physically, but psychologically and emotionally to come back to that. So, so when, I, when I understood that, I understood that that homeostatic urge had served us probably pretty well for our whole history as human beings until you know, the last century or two, and especially now. So this homeostatic urge that we have, this urge to, okay, let's come back. Let's go back. Let's go back to the previous known state as quickly as possible because there's so much change on every level. And especially now, as we were talking about Denver the last couple of years from the pandemic, so much change on every level that that urge doesn't serve us as well anymore. It is most often not helpful, not the, the best option to try and go back to what happened before. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. You know, I think a lot of people can no doubt relate to it, even though people who, you know, I love change, I embrace it, I like trying new things, I like experiencing new things. But if you think about the things you're trying to experience, you have some measure of control over. And it's always things, when you think about in terms of your life, it's something that you do, but then you go back to your normal. Right. I go on vacation. I'll try these different experiences. I'll try these new foods. Yes. But then I go back home and I'm back in my routine. I'm back in that homeostatic state of being. That's exactly right. That's a great frame. And you'll also notice, and this is now I can I'll move to the change art because you've set it up so well, is that the difference is that most people like change that they decide. I'm going to go on vacation. I'm going to look for a new job. That, but what we have, what almost all of us have a harder time with is change that's proposed to us, change that's imposed upon us. That's where our kind of wait, I'm not sure, let me go back to how it was before thing kicks in. So that's why when, when I understood and come crack this code on the change arc, which was my response to, okay, so if change is historically hard for most people, Let's get clear, if I can get clear on how an individual human being successfully goes through a change, psychologically and emotionally, then we can be more helpful to people. We, Proteus, can be more helpful to people going through change. So that's how we came up with the change arc, this how people go through change. So the first step of that, as you said, we call proposed change. So the change comes at you. And it turns out that when a change comes at us, we almost always have the same three questions that we want answered. And the first one is, no surprise, what does this mean for me? What am I going to have to do differently? What is this change going to be in my world? That's question number one. The second question is, why is it happening? <laughs> because we have in these situations a pretty strong preference for the status quo. It's like, give me a really good reason or I'm not even gonna consider this. And then the third question we have is, what will it look like when it's done? What's the future post-change? And it turns out, this was fascinating to me, Tenver, when I was researching for the book, it turns out that a lot of psychologists now think that our deepest fear is fear of the unknown. 
So that's one of the big problems with the change. It comes at you and it's sort of like, here, do this change. And it's like walking into a dark alley in the middle of the night. I don't know what's going to happen if I do this change, right? So we want to know what will it look like when it's done. So we start to ask these questions, or if, if we're the leader, people start to ask us these questions. And unfortunately, they we, they ask these questions with a kind of negative confirmation bias because of our difficulty with change. And this is the second step of the change arc, which is mindset shift. We start asking those questions from an assumption, from a belief that our mindset is that the change is likely to be difficult and costly and weird. And difficult means I don't know how to do it and other people are going to make it hard for me to do. It's just there can be lots of obstacles to doing this change. Costly means, and I really I really like when I understood this, costly means it will take from me things I value. This change will take from me things I value. And it, it that can be kind of obvious things like time and money, but it's more likely that what we believe, that our mindset is, that the change will take from us things like independence and reputation and relationships and freedom, you know, all these things that we really value deeply. And then weird just means weird. It's like, ooh, this is strange. This is not how we operate around here. So imagine we're asking these questions about what does it look like and, you know, why is it happening and what will the future be when the change is done? But we're asking them through this filter of it's going to be difficult, costly, and weird. And so that results in what people in organizations call change resistance. But it's not. It's just this legitimate question, hesitancy about change that you can move through. Because what we then found out was that when people either change or are helped to change, their mindset about change, then they can be open to it. And when their mindset changes from this change is going to be difficult, costly, and weird to I think this change could be easy or at least doable, rewarding, it will give me more than it takes away, and normal, this is normal, this is how we operate, that's when people start to be willing and able to learn and do the new behaviors that the change requires and the change can occur. So it became clear to us that the core of this, and this is why the book ended up being called Change from the Inside Out, is helping people, first leaders, and then the leaders helping those they lead, to shift their mindset about the change. Because what we noticed is that when people start to be open and willing to do a change, it's rarely because external circumstances have changed. It's almost always because their mindset has shifted. So that was really the core of what we understood. And back to your earlier point for leaders, it's it's a case of, you know, put on your own mask before attempting to help others. That until leaders make their own mindset shift about a change, it's nigh impossible for them to help other people they lead to make that shift because People are going to look at them and go, nope, you're not doing it. I don't buy it. Right? Absolutely. And I just love this idea that part of embracing change is making a mindset change from seeing it as being difficult, costly, and weird to seeing it as being easy, rewarding, and normal. Yeah. Because I think so many times when we talk of change, it's something external or outside from us. We rarely consider 
how we view it or understand it. But I think this change arc model helps illustrate that the real challenge we face is at the very beginning with ourselves and how we see that change. That's exactly right. That's a great way to frame it. And and when, as you know, we also we have a, a five-step change model then that we use in organizations that I explain to people in the book that we think we have seen does a really good job integrating this human side of change, what you were just talking about, and the kind of practical project management side of change. And what we've seen is that as you go through the five steps of this model, at the point when any given person is introduced to the change, they start to go through their change arc. So there are some people that leaders who are initiating the change, let's say, who start who go through their change arc in the first step when they're figuring out what's the change, why do we need it? And so then they're through their change arc when they then in steps three or four turn to more and more people in the organization, introduce them to the change. And another way that the change arc is helpful to leaders, and we've seen this now that we've been using this for the last two or three years, is that if they rec- if leaders recognize, okay, I've gone through my change arc, and now I have to help other people their change arc, the people I'm leading. The reason that's really helpful is because too often leaders go through their own change and then they turn to their people, introduce them to the change and expect them to suddenly magically be where they are three months after having heard about and processed the change. And, and when the, and, and when their folks aren't there, <laughs> which how could they be <laughs> right away? They're like, Oh, they're so change resistant and they're so risk averse. It's like, no dude, they're going through exactly the same thing you went through two or three months ago. So it helps create that frame where leaders can be more patient and more empathic about their people going through their own change arc, right? Right. And I'm actually glad that you mentioned this five-step change model you described in your book, because I'd love to dive into it. And I know there is a lot of material and aspects of each step that we can cover. So what I thought would be great is we can go through each one and just take one particular aspect that we can look at for that particular step in this five-step change model. And the first step in this model is clarify the change and why it's needed, which might seem obvious, except there have been so many examples of leaders and organizations clearly overlooking this critical first step. But what I especially liked in this first step is this idea that we have to define the change we're after by coming up with what you call the challenge question. So could you elaborate on what a challenge question is? and how this helps us begin the process of taking ourselves through that change arc we spoke of earlier. Oh, I love that you honed in on that. So lots of times people aren't, and and as you know, I use throughout the book, I I always do this in my books, but I have a a frame story, a story of a family-owned jewelry company that has a handful of stores in the Northeast who are having to go through some changes. And at the beginning, the um, daughter who is the father's kind of CEO and waiting, she knows they need to go through some changes. She's clear that they're not going to be able to stay competitive and continue growing if they don't go through some changes, but she's not really sure what those changes are. And that's the circumstance that we find in lots of organizations where it's like, man, we really got to change some things, but we're not entirely clear on what they are. So coming up with a challenge question is, which is, as we define it, a how can we question. So what you figure out is what's not working? What are the main things that aren't working in the current situation? And then you craft a challenge question that's basically how can we solve for that? 
So for instance, in this frame story, a couple of their challenges were that they, uh, you know, how can we stay competitive and continue to grow in this era of e-commerce, basically, because they were brick and mortar stores. So uh, the challenge question is a way to frame up what isn't working and what you're solving for so that you can use it as a jumping off point to then clearly define your change. And we found that's often very helpful for people who are just kind of in this, you used the word vortex earlier when we were talking, this vortex of, oh, things aren't working, but what is it? What are we really trying to solve for? How can we blank? Is that is that helpful? That makes perfect sense. And I think it helps set up also our discussion for the second step in your change model, which is envision the future state where we need to be able to answer the question, what will be different following this change? Yes. And yes. again, there's a part of the step in the change model, which on the surface makes sense. And yet, if you look at the various change efforts getting a lot of attention in the business world, it's definitely not being applied. And what I'm referring to here is how in this step in the change model, leaders need to create a shared picture of success where going back to what we talked about with the change arc, we're creating a mindset shift from seeing change as being difficult and costly to seeing it as being easy and rewarding. And I think this measure also helps address employee concerns of whether this change is just a pet project for their leader, as it requires you to answer What's the benefit for those you'll be asking to commit to making this change and transforming the organization? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's also, there's a there's a quote, I don't know, I can't remember where it's from, but I really love it. But um, a group of people aligned around a common vision is a very powerful thing. Mm. So if you, a lot of times when there's going to be a change, if you don't say it out loud and say out loud the future that you're hoping this change will support or bring everybody's got their own idea. Not everybody's on the same page, even though you may think you are. And if you can say out loud, if you can come to the, if the group of people initiating this change, which is usually a pretty senior group, can come to the point where they look at each other and go, yes, we all agree that these are the three or four things that we all hope will be true in a couple of years after this change has taken place. That's so powerful. It's so powerful that they're, it's like they're all talking off the same page of the, they're all singing off the same page of the hymnal, right? And so then when they go out to begin to talk to the organization about it, there aren't a lot of mixed messages. People aren't just making things up. And worst of all, there's not just a void. That goes back to that walking into a dark alley in the middle of the night thing I was talking about. People really want to have some sense of what the, what future this will bring. Right. And I think one of the things that we've seen a lot being discussed as being a major pain point, even before the pandemic, that employees were having with leaders was a lack of clarity. Yeah. That we just seem to be kind of jumping from priority to priority. But you might see as a leader, because you see the big picture, you might be able to connect those dots and you could see how one leads to the other. It's helping us get to where we need to go, even if we're going on this kind of what seems to me a haphazard approach. But I don't have that clarity to understand this. And you can say, trust me, but after a point when you're starting to veer off on a tangent and then suddenly we're veering back, it's kind of hard to say, well, do I trust that you're doing what you're doing or are you just reacting to what you see happening around you? And, and that's why I like these two first steps, because as you point out in your book, these first two steps in your change model are really focused mostly on the leader to do the heavy lifting and both defining what the change is, 
what it looks like and what the future outcome looks like and how we'll measure success going forward. That's exactly right. And, and and when you think about it, so the way what we've understood and how it usually works when we help clients with change is these first two steps, uh, usually there's what we've what we started to call the change initiation team. It's usually a fairly senior group of people who are thinking about this big change. Sometimes it's just a leader, usually it's a, hopefully it's a group of people. And then in the third step, they start to bring other people into the tent. But so this small group in these first two steps is really important. And I'll use an example from our current state. So whatever you think about Elon Musk, good, bad, or indifferent, he is clearly not doing these things at Twitter in a way that people know. No one knows what his vision for Twitter is. No one knows what he thinks the current state is going to be after these massive changes that he's making. And I think, you know, change is disruptive. And without that clarity about where we're going, just as you said, it's much more emotionally taxing for people. You lose great people. You There's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of just uh, noise in the system. It's It really makes it hard to do a change well if there's not any of that sense of what it's going to be like. Right. Well, and as we said, when we were discussing the change arc, it just makes change seem to be difficult and costly and weird, right? Which is exactly what what's the problem when you don't have those questions and that clarity at the beginning. And I love how you're actually now, you were hinting at it, which is the third step in the change model, which you call build the change, where, as you mentioned, we're now expanding our efforts beyond that leadership team to now include people who will make up what you call, and I like this, this is really fascinating, the change team. Yeah. So could you describe here, what is a change team? And how do you choose who should be on it and how does their participation in particular evolve as the change process progresses? Okay. Wow. I love this question. So in most big organizational changes, um, it's the senior team is are not going to be the people who day to day are both planning the change and then managing and driving it through the organization. So they're, they usually need to nominate and create a change team. In fact, we've been helping one client with this because they're making this really big change and they didn't have, they weren't thinking about a change team. It wasn't going to be anybody's day job to actually make this happen. And the longer we talked to them, they realized, oh my goodness, we really have to get this change team together. Because what this this team has, as I said, two really important um, kind of mandates and responsibilities. The first one is that this team plans the actual change what, you know, like a project, what is actually going to need to happen in order to make this change occur. And it's, it's a project planning exercise. It's, you need to do all the project planning, you know, work breakdown structure and the deliverables, and you need to really plan it out well. It's astonishing to me the extent to which this often doesn't happen in big organizations. So you have to do that. And so the group of people that you're bringing together, first of all, they have to, at least some of them have to be experienced in project planning. They know how to do this. Almost all of them should be um, from parts of the organization that are going to be affected by the change because then they'll have more skin in the game. They need to have high credibility in the organization and they need to feel fairly comfortable with change. They they themselves need to be relatively change capable because you don't want to spend all your time getting the change team over their hesitations and negativity. So they need to be fairly change capable. 
And then especially the leader of the change team needs to be really good at getting difficult things done in an organization because managing and driving a change through an organization, a big one especially, can be very difficult. Right. And, you know, Erica, just to summarize where we are so far in this change model, we started by defining what the change is and why it's needed. We also defined what will be different because of this change and how it will benefit those impacted by the change. And now you've just described how we go about creating a hand-picked team of people to make up a change team who will not only evaluate the organization's readiness to affect this change, but who will help define the concrete steps that are needed to be taken. And this leads us to step four, which is lead the transition. And this step is interesting in how we're, again, widening the focus of our change efforts. We're here, we're now focusing on those who will be most impacted by the change. And I think this can seem to be counterintuitive, as many leaders tend to focus on overcoming resistance to their change initiatives. And this resistance typically comes from those who are most impacted by what's being proposed. Yeah. But I think it makes sense when we realize that at this point in the change process, we've done the foundational work so we could really focus on those impacted by these efforts. And here you describe that the way leaders can do this is by clarifying what will be the ending because of this change, as well as what will be the new beginnings. Yeah, I'd love it if you could talk a bit more about this notion, because as I just mentioned earlier, we were talking about creating clarity. So could you describe and elaborate a bit more about this notion of clarifying endings and beginnings for those most impacted by this change? Yes. So this is something that we learned from a wonderful guy named William Bridges, who was the first person in America, at least, to talk in depth about how human beings are affected by change. He wrote a wonderful book called Transitions and then another one called Managing Transitions. And it's all about how when people go through change, there are things that are ending for them that they need to grieve. And then there are things that are that are starting, new beginnings, you know. And so what what we, and we used that model for many years until we sort of invented our own, we found out that they're really lined up because if you look at the people who are going to be most affected by a change and you get clear with them, they're the important people to ask, what is what they believe is going to be ending for them with this change and what's going to be beginning, then you have the best insight into what is likely to feel difficult, costly, and weird for those people. And so you can help them, and we have these four change levers that we use to help. You can help them make that mindset shift in a way that's very personalized for them because you know what's going to be ending and beginning for them and therefore what's going to seem difficult, costly, and weird and how you can help them to see how it could be easy or at least doable, rewarding, and normal. So once you've figured out all that about the people who are most affected, that's hugely helpful to plan then what we've come to call with a nod to William Bridges, the transition plan. What are those things that you're going to do to help not only those people, but everybody through their change arc? And then, and this is really, this almost never happens in organizations, then you can implement the change plan, the practical project management part of the change plan, along with this transition plan, this human-centered plan to help people through it. So I'll give you I'll give you a very simple example that that I think will make this very clear. So let's say that um, 
you're going to have, uh, you're going to use in your company a new CRM, a new customer relationship management tool. You're going from Salesforce, let's say, to something else. And there's all the practical things of moving all the data and uh, changing, you know, doing the actual training of the people who are going to be using it. And the transition plan, which needs to happen before those things start to happen, to help people understand, you know, to answer their questions, what, why is this happening? What's it going to be like? What does it mean for me to help answer their questions, give them a chance to give input, all the things that will make it easier for them to go start going through their change arc. You want to do that stuff, that transition planning stuff, before the practical changes start to happen, because that way people are much more likely to be able to make those changes and do the things that the changes require. Does that make sense? So the, the order of it is very important, and you want to make sure that you implement those two plans, the transition plan and the change plan, in concert with each other. No, I think it makes perfect sense. And you know what's interesting is, as you were describing it, I was already starting to imagine how this really helps create a wonderful segue to the fifth and final step in your change model, which is keep the change going. Because again, here we're talking about making a transition. And I think that's exactly what we're looking at when we get to the fifth step, because I think much like steps one and two, this last step can seem obvious. That's also why we're at risk of overlooking it. And it's because in this case, what we're hoping to do is to make sure that the change we're pursuing sticks, right? Yes. And much like a transition where we were, as we discussed at the change arc, we were in this homeostatic notion of how we operate, where things stay relatively stable, the same, and we're transitioning to something where we're accepting this change as being our new normal, if you will, but that yeah. we now have this mindset that we had to develop and with it, these new behaviors that will now allow us to remain open and receptive to other changes we'll have to make going forward. So looking at this fifth and final step in your five-step change model, what are some of the things here, Erica, that we need to make note of to, to ensure that we really aren't treating change as this one-and-done process, which I can tell you, my with many leaders, this is the thing a lot of them struggle with, is I just want to get this done so I can focus on the more important stuff, right? And a lot of them laugh when I say that because like, yeah, that's me. I tend to do that. But how do we make sure we're really making this a way for us and our organization to remain agile and adaptive to whatever changes we'll need to take on going forward? Oh, that is exactly the right question. So, so uh, one thing is in the uh, second step where you're talking about the vision for the future, you know, what's the future going to be like after this change? W one of the things we always encourage people to do is create both a, a vision, you know, a shared picture of success and measures of success. What specifically will change when this uh, change has been successfully completed? So you come back to those measures of success and you really start measuring them. You look to see what's happening. Because um, that's the best way to keep from wandering off, you know, like, let's look and see if this change is actually having the positive impact that we said it was going to have six months or a year ago. And the other great thing about that is changes, pretty much without exception, large organizational changes have unintended consequences. You, you just can't predict everything. And even your change plan is the best guess you have with the available data. So things are going to come up. And if you're not keeping track, if you're not staying on it, 
then that can really blow up the whole change and and blow up your credibility as a leader. It's like, wow, this didn't work at all is what everybody's thinking. So I'll give you an example. There, One of the examples I use in the book is a company that decided to change its core, a manufacturing company, its core production process for its key product. And what they decided to do was automate part of the production line, a part that was very complicated and took up a lot of people's bandwidth unnecessarily because it could be automated. So they automated that, it worked well, that part of the change worked well, but then one of their measures of success was, as you might imagine, improved cycle time. That you know, products got made quicker and that wasn't happening. The cycle time wasn't improving. So they had to really look and see what was happening. And fortunately, they had to gather input from the people on the line who saw it very clearly. What was happening is that the automation part of the line sped it up, but then it went back to humans who couldn't go any faster than they had gone before. So things were piling up. Products were piling up at the end of the automated part of the line. So with the help of the people on the line, they made they implemented a secondary change, which was to divide the post-automation part of the production line into two, so that there were you know twice two, twice as many people working on that part of the line. And within a month or two after making that change, they got the cycle time improvements that they were talking about that they they had set as their measure of success. So this is both a great example of keeping the change going and how important it is, and also of making people more open to subsequent changes because one of the one of our change levers, one of the ways that we help people through change is called give control. So giving people a voice, giving people a choice, giving people agency and a change. So by taking the input from these folks on the production line as to what isn't wasn't working, and then getting them involved in improving it, the leadership credibility went up enormously and people were then started to feel like, oh, I see this change isn't so bad and we were able to make it better and I wonder what will happen next. You know, their mindset was much more open and positive toward subsequent changes. Well, I can tell you, Eric, this has been a fascinating look at change. And I think you've definitely given our listeners much to consider Even if we just covered a fraction of all the different steps and measures you detail in your book about this five-step change model, I just really think just alone with people understanding now that change arc we discussed at the beginning and how we have to begin this process internally with ourselves, I really think will have a big impact on how people approach change going in the future and understanding what is really the big point of resistance they need to address and overcome so that they can really be more effective in their efforts going forward. So thanks for coming on my podcast again, Erica. It's been lovely speaking with you again after all these years. I gotta thank you so much. I I love so much that you really obviously read and thought about the book and you asked such wonderful, insightful questions. So it was just a pleasure to talk to you about this. If you'd like to learn more about Erica's book and listen to her previous appearance on this podcast, check out the show notes for this episode on our podcast page at tavernasir.com slash LBC. And if you're interested in learning more about my speaking work, either for a keynote or a workshop, please check out my speaking page on my website, where you can learn more about the topics I share in my keynotes and corporate training sessions, as well as what past attendees have to say about my work. I'm Tavin Nasir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.